This morning I have decided to step away from our ongoing exposition to the epistle, the epistle to the Hebrews and talk to you about the subject of where is God in hurricanes. That might seem like an odd title for a sermon, but given the insanity that I've heard battered around on the airwaves, I thought it might be good to address this from a biblical perspective. We are all aware of the back-to-back hurricanes that our country has just experienced. They brought unimaginable destruction to the United States, Hurricane Harvey and Irma, and once again, many people are searching for answers, especially those who have lost loved ones, those who have lost their homes, in many cases, all their earthly possessions. And millions are wondering why these things happen. Certainly those who deny the existence of God attribute catastrophes such as this to Mother Nature, that all of this is just the result of a random world, and all of these things have a perfectly scientific explanation. Others aren't so sure. Others believe in God, but they're not quite certain how God fits into these kinds of things. Some of them believe that it's God's judgment on those who voted for Donald Trump, which is an interesting observation, especially when Houston is predominantly Democratic. Maybe it was God's judgment for voting for Hillary Clinton. We just don't know. But you hear these things going around, and some would say that God is not powerful enough to stop these kinds of things. Some people who call themselves Christian will say that. Others argue that God is as shocked as we are when these things happen, that he has nothing at all to do with what happens in nature, but he is there to pick up the pieces when it's all over. And there's where we see God. Many liberal theologians argue that natural disasters catch God by surprise because God doesn't know the future. This is the heretical openness of God viewpoint that many hold to. But dear friends, I would submit to you from the get-go that the biblical position is very different from all of this. And I might add that if you do not know Christ, you will find what I'm about to say to be not only offensive, but profoundly ridiculous. But the answer to the question, where is God in all of this, is simply this. Our sovereign God has ordained to allow natural disasters and every other calamitous event. And he does this to accomplish his saving purposes and to ultimately bring glory to himself. Saints through the ages have found great consolation knowing that whatever the disaster Whatever the evil, whatever the suffering, God is not only intimately aware of it, he is ultimately the source of it. And technically this subject falls under the efforts of theodicy, which is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. And I might add that hurricanes are evil to the core the misery, the destruction, the disease, the death that they bring, it's all evil. And it is quite common for man to attempt to either attack or rescue the character of God for allowing evil to enter into his perfect universe for reasons he never fully discloses. In fact, God makes no attempt to ever justify his actions. He is subject to no human court. And for this reason, our best efforts to explain him in this regard are woefully inadequate. However, Scripture does give us some general categories of thought to give us some basic understanding. So I'd like to do that this morning. And foundational to all of this, we must remember that God has made it clear in his word that he is both Sovereign and omniscient. 
There is therefore nothing in our life that he has not ordained to allow or understand completely, including natural disasters and any other type of evil calamity that brings about suffering and death. And it is comforting to know that God is fully in charge of all that happens. Nothing catches God by surprise. There is no plan B that he must somehow perform. As we think about it with respect to his sovereignty, we must remember according to Isaiah 46.10, he is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel described God as the one who does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist tells us in Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Speaking through Isaiah, the Lord said in Isaiah 45, verses 6 through 7, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He went on to say, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Calamity can be translated evil, disaster. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 16 and verse 4 that the Lord has made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. And you may recall that Hannah praised God for his sovereignty, even over evil, when she prayed in 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. And in Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 37, Jeremiah asks rhetorically, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? The prophet Amos also declared in Amos 3.6, If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Well, in these and many other verses in the Bible, we see that there is no doubt that God reigns in absolute sovereignty over his creation. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Regarding his omniscience, that is, his ability to know all things, we read in Psalm 33, beginning in verse 13, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. And in utter awe, David described how God knew the, even the most minute details of his life. In Psalm 139. In Psalm 147, the Lord is praised as the one who heals the brokenhearted, the one, according to verse 4, who counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is the Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. There is nothing that man can think or do that escapes his notice. According to Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Indeed, according to Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 verse 28, he, his understanding is inscrutable. And in Hebrews 4 verse 13, we are reminded that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 1 John 3 and verse 19 says, He knows everything. So, dear friends, Hurricanes Harvey and Irma did not catch God by surprise. And despite the inevitable sorrow and suffering of life, 
We find comfort knowing that the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, right? For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, I would like to examine the three most popular questions that tend to arise when these catastrophic events, these natural disasters, so to speak, hit our nation. The first question is, does the Bible tell us why we have natural disasters? We want to answer that question. Secondly, are these catastrophic hurricanes prophetic, quote, signs of the times leading up to the second coming of Christ? And then a third question is, what is God up to in natural disasters? So let's answer the first question. Does the Bible tell us why we have natural disasters? Go to Romans chapter 8. If we look, for example, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider, in other words, I I have a, a settled conclusion formulated by sound reasoning. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here Paul anticipates the glories of the resurrection and the great hope that he has that provides comfort and strength to endure suffering. He contemplates how God would have us understand that all earthly afflictions literally pale into insignificance compared to the glory that is to be revealed. But notice what he says in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Fascinating text. Here, all of God's non-rational, inanimate creation, the animals, the plants, the mountains, the rivers, uh, the plains, the seas, the heavenly bodies, all of them are personified as anxiously longing. The idea is they're, they're... watching eagerly with with an outstretched head as if they're looking for something. They're anticipating something. They have an all-consuming concentration and an expectation fueled by a confident hope. They're waiting eagerly. They're waiting with great anticipation but with patience. What are they waiting for? For the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing, the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the uncovering, the revelation. That glorious time when the curse will be removed and Christ will return in all of his glory. When he renovates this earth and returns it to Edenic splendor. And according to Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then, then we, referring to believers, also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, why is all of creation filled with such longing? Notice verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. Now, here we go back to the great truths found in Genesis 3. You will recall that after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed all of creation and all of mankind in creation. Before the curse, there were no uninhabitable places upon the earth. There were no hurricanes or tornadoes or natural disasters. There were no polar ice fields. There were no harmful bacteria, no earthquakes, not even any fallen human nature. Can you imagine that? Then in Genesis 1 and verse 31, we read how God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And yet now we come to Romans 1 and we read that somewhere along the line he had subjected all of this to futility, to aimlessness, to an inability to reach a goal is the idea. The inability to fulfill a purpose. What this is referring to is because of sin. The creator cursed his creation. Like all mankind, even his inanimate Non-rational creation would no longer exist as it was originally intended. And we see this reflected, for example, in physics. You probably remember the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. 
that states that all matter and energy in the universe is in a constant state of entropy. In other words, this is an, there, there is an irreversible process of, of disintegration and degradation and, and deterioration. And however, even with the curse, isn't it amazing, we can still look out at God's creation and see his glory and his majesty. But folks, what we see is nothing compared to what it was originally or what it will be someday. Today, we see his curse manifested in a very violent earth. Much of the earth is uninhabitable due to extreme cold or due to enormous bodies of water. It is subject to pestilence. It is subject to weeds and drought and floods and erosion and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and on and on it goes. Isn't it sad to see the water, for example, in Houston, how it's filled with dreadful E. coli bacteria and all other kinds of bacteria. People are being being harassed by poisonous snakes that are hid up in their homes and in their furniture because they've been displaced. Alligators, can you imagine having alligators slithering around in your home? Floating piles of fire ants looking for a place to live. So indeed, our earth is a very dangerous place to live. Bottom line, dear friends, What people call natural disasters are ultimately a result of God's curse because of sin. A perpetual reminder of how God's holiness has been offended. These things remind us that the world is not a safe place to live and it's not a home for which we are ultimately suited. For we were originally created for something radically different. In the realm of our relationship to God, our relationship with other people, and the world in which we live. But notice again, back to verse 20, at the end he says that he subjected it in hope. Isn't that wonderful? He subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's amazing to think that someday all disease and decay and human suffering and death Natural disasters brought on by the curse, all of those things will cease to exist and the curse will be lifted. I believe this will first happen at the second coming. I believe in a renovated earth and the millennial kingdom when the saints will reign with Christ, as we read in Revelation 20, numerous Old Testament texts. And that is the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. And then ultimately, according to Second Peter 3 and verse 13, the entire universe will be destroyed. It will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 and other Old Testament texts speak of this. But eventually the curse is going to be removed. I'm reminded of what Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 says, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So creation remains in back to Romans, verse 21, slavery to corruption, that inevitable process of deterioration and degradation. And it's going to continue until the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, until Christ returns and liberates his creation from the bondage of sin's curse. So until that glorious day, verse 22 He says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's as though all of creation is groaning in pain, like a mother travailing in pain, waiting to give birth to a child. All of creation travails in the pain of labor as it prepares to give birth ultimately to a new heaven and a new earth, anticipating the glorious arrival of a new creation that will glorify God in all of its fullness. In verse 23, he goes on to say, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, we as believers, even we ourselves 
groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We all know what it is to groan. We have many reasons to groan. I have groaned a great deal over the last week, and so has many of the people in my family. And we continue to groan. We all groan, don't we? We all have profound difficulties that we face. And every believer needs to be aware of the corruption of sin in his own life and in the lives of others, as well as the, the staggering manifestations of sin that we see all around us. We, as redeemed people, experience our own sin as we are still incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness. We long for a day of ultimate emancipation, that final regeneration when we have our glorified body, when we will be freed forever from the hideous consequences of sin, when we will be able to live in perfect fellowship with God and all that he has created. But until that time, we groan. We must endure even hurricanes and all of the other evils that come upon us. But we do so remembering that a new day is coming. Aren't you thankful for that? Don't you long for that day, that universal regeneration? I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling. No more, no more struggling to survive. No more disease. No more stifling heat or shivering cold. I mean, let's get right down to it. No more ticks or chiggers, you know? No, I, I won't have to be careful every time I move something because I'm afraid of copperheads under there or a brown recluse or any of that type of thing. No more devastating storms or earthquakes or wars or, or divorce or broken families or abused children or hungry people. No more pedophiles. I'm reminded of Matthew 19 and verse 28, where Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The regeneration, the palingenesia, the, the new world that's coming. Peter spoke of this, for example, in Acts 3, verse 21, as the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I believe, again, that to be a reference to the earthly kingdom that the Lord will establish. We read about it in Revelation 20 and many other passages. Well, secondly, we need to answer the question, are these catastrophic hurricanes prophetic signs of the times that are leading up to Christ's Second coming? Well, the answer is yes and no. Let me explain this. They certainly do give a preview of, of, of catastrophic divine judgment. But what we witness today, dear friends, is not even close to the kind of destruction that God has promised to pour out upon the earth. We read detailed descriptions of this in the Old Testament prophecies. We see it especially in Christ's Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24, which parallels the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments of Revelation 6 through 16. Let me rehearse that briefly for you. God first uses satanically controlled men to unleash his wrath upon a wicked, unbelieving world. And as a result of that, we read how there will be a holocaust of worldwide world. There will be unprecedented famine and death. 25% of the population will be destroyed. Then God directly intervenes in the sixth seal in Revelation 6, beginning with a great earthquake. And we read how that's accompanied by numerous volcanic, volcanic eruptions that will blacken the sky. There will be cosmic disturbances, perhaps massive asteroid or meteor showers. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 14, says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, 
and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Obviously, the supernatural disasters, these supernatural disasters exceed anything that we've ever seen, that we've ever experienced. And that's just the beginning. In the seventh seal judgment, we see that that unleashes seven trumpet judgments, which consists of hail and fire thrown from heaven. We learn that a third of all the trees will be burned up and all the grass. Then the seas are smitten, perhaps by a meteor or an asteroid, and it kills a third of all the sea creatures. One third of all the ships are destroyed. Then the fresh water is struck, polluting a third of all the fresh water upon the earth. Then the heavens are struck. Sun's heat is reduced, causing enormous drop in temperature. And then demons are released to torment unbelievers for five months. The text says that they will swarm like locusts and sting like scorpions. Men will pray to die, but they can't. Then another demonic host is released from the river Euphrates, which is the region of Iraq, to kill one-third of mankind, and that's a third of what's left. And then, after you have have the seal and the trumpet, and then finally the bowl judgments, and they come even more quickly. That includes loathsome sores that will come upon men who wear the mark of the beast. Every living creature in the sea is then killed. The rest of the fresh water is destroyed. God scorches men who will continue to blaspheme him with intense heat. And then there's worldwide darkness. And the text says that they nod their tongues because of the pain, but would not repent. But they continued to blaspheme God. And then God supernaturally draws all of the armies of the world to come against Israel. Retaliation against their God who has caused all of this. That's the battle of Armageddon. There's more demonic spirits that that join with these wicked armies. Then there's another earthquake like the world has never known. There's no more islands. There's no more mountains. There's 75-pound hail that comes out of the sky. And the world is literally disintegrating under the wrath of of a holy God. Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. And then the good news, Jesus returns in power and great glory. Bottom line, dear friends, when you examine the prophetic literature in Scripture and grasp the unprecedented affliction that will culminate in the return of Christ, you will quickly see that what we experience today bears no resemblance to those kinds of things. They don't even register on the radar of impending judgment. But they do remind us that life is fragile and that God hates sin and that he has cursed the earth and that we need to be ready. And finally, what is God up to in natural disasters? And here's where you hear all of these crazy things. I'd like for you to turn to Luke 13. You may remember the context there. And in Luke 12, Jesus is, is, is giving a discourse. Luke 12 says that there's so many thousands of people that gather together around him that they're literally trampling on So Jesus is preaching to the masses. And there's several interruptions. He's interacting with them. In Luke 13, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now, on the same occasion, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, evidently, Pilate had sent some of the Roman authorities into the temple to kill some of the Galilean Jews who were in the process of offering sacrifices. These were probably Galilean Jews that he considered to be uh, sedacious uh, zealots. We don't know all of the details. Verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he went on to say in verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits 
than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now let me explain this to you. And according to Jewish theology, because they were God's covenant people, they were the divine darlings. They were special. They were God's pet people. They were only recipients of God's blessing. Nothing bad would ever fall upon them because they were special. And so when, when a Jewish person had a disease or experienced uh, a birth defect or, 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 or some tragic accident, they believed that it was God's judgment upon them because of their sin, that they were some exceedingly sinful person. You remember in John 9 when Jesus passed by a blind man from birth, um, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? So that was their mindset, okay? And so if anything ever happened bad to a Jew, it resulted in great confusion because they automatically assumed their innocence. And certainly this can't be God's judgment upon us. So... They give Jesus this actual scenario of a, of a great calamity that occurred, and we read it here in Luke 13. Now, again, the Galileans were notorious for being especially rebellious against Rome, and many of them were uh, subversive zealots and, and terrorists, you might say. And evidently, the, the group in question was hunted by, by Pilate and and. And perhaps they had come to the, to the temple for asylum, we don't know, perhaps to worship, but whatever it was, Pilate sends in the troops and the troops massacre them while they're giving, giving their sacrifices. By the way, Pilate's heavy hand against the Jewish people eventually provoked the Jews to even further rebellion, and that's what led the Romans to destroy them at A.D. 70. So Pilate was, was notorious for this kind of thing. Now, the Jews were wondering about, okay, what was going on with those guys when they they got killed there? What what was happening? Where was God in all of that? Now, we've got to bear in mind that before this text, Jesus has been talking about judgment in verses 57 and 59 uh, there in in chapter 12. In essence, remember, he's telling the, the people, oh, you need to settle uh, with your opponent before you stand before the judge and he exposes your guilt and so forth. And so get right before God before you come into his holy omniscient uh, bar of justice. So with the theme of judgment now ringing in their minds, um, somehow they are uh, the ones who were aware of this barbaric massacre in the temple and who were presumably innocent people who got killed, their blood being mixed with the sacrifice. Some of these people decide to ask Jesus, essentially, where was God in such a calamity? In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? Don't you hear that a lot today? That's exactly what they're asking here. Why do bad things happen to good people? The assumption is a loving God would never be a party to such a thing. And the same question is asked all the time with every great, great catastrophe. So, in verse 2, the, the Lord now, knowing their assumption that these things, you know, could, should never happen to innocent people, that's what they're thinking, so how could God allow this? He answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? You know, he's putting them on the spot. That's what you guys typically think. And here Jesus is getting to the very heart of this issue. You know, why evil? Why does it fall indiscriminately upon people, often killing innocent people as well as wicked people? Now, by the way, certainly there are times when God judges wicked people through various kinds of wrath, but... But, you know, what about war when innocent people die? What about uh, a plane crash or an AIDS epidemic or a tsunami or hurricane? What about that? Where does God fit into all of this? Is he as shocked as everybody else is? Is he powerless to do anything about it? Is he indifferent? Or is he the one who works all things after the counsel of his will? 
I find it fascinating that in prophecy we see our sovereign God taking us into the secret chambers of, of his eternal counsels. And, and he tells us how, how he is going to orchestrate all of the events in history through his providence to accomplish his eternal decrees that all might marvel at his sovereign rule. We see constantly in prophecy and all through scripture that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. That his dominion is universal, it is unlimited. That he orchestrates all things for our good and his glory. Nothing catches him by surprise. That he brings both blessing and calamity, as we read earlier, Amos 3.6. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Well, yes. And losing all ten of his children, Job said in Job 1.21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So, dear friends, when people ask, where is God in all of this? The answer is always the same. He is the same place he has always been. He is on his throne as the sovereign king of his creation. And certainly the question is, is he the ruler of your life? The 17th century Puritan theologian, Stephen Charnock, who is probably best known for his work called The Existence and Attributes of God. Incredible, incredible work. A man who, by the way, came to faith studying at Cambridge when he was 14 years old. He wrote this about God's rule. He said, a view of God upon his throne will make us think his service our privilege, his precepts our ornaments, and obedience to him the greatest honor and nobility. It will make us weighty and serious in our performances. It would stake us down to any duty. The reason we are so loose and unmannerly in the carriage of our souls before God is because we consider him not as a great king, end quote. But dear friends, this is the God of the Bible. And with this in mind, Jesus answers this important question. You know, how can we make sense out of calamities that fall upon and kill presumably innocent people? What kind of a God would allow this? Verse 2, he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And then he gives the startling answer in verse 3. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus is saying these Galileans didn't die because they were worse sinners than others. Nor do others still live because they're somehow better than others. That's not the point. The issue is simply this. Death is inevitable. Be ready. Death is inevitable. Be ready. And how are we to be ready? We are to repent. We are to agree with the righteous condemnation of a holy God against us. We are to acknowledge the evil that we have in our heart and our propensity to rebel against a holy God and to acknowledge how we are helpless to change ourselves. We are to admit that all that we are and all that we do is fundamentally offensive to a holy God and then cry out to him for mercy, acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of our salvation and to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Dear friends, the real calamity is perishing in your sin. That's Jesus' point. And then he reminds them of another Scenario that they would have been familiar with, a natural disaster, if you will. He says in verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Now, evidently, there was some tower that fell and killed a bunch of people, 18 people. And by the way, the, the Romans would tend to build these towers because they used them to build their aqueducts. And so somehow there was some... Great tragedy that hit the papers in that day. So, do you suppose that those on whom the tower fell and killed, were they worse culprits than all the other men who lived in Jerusalem? He says in verse 5, I tell you no. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here again, he challenges their errant theology. He's saying these victims weren't any more wicked than anyone else. Dear friends, here's here's the real calamity. And this is what Jesus is saying. The calamity is not what happened in the temple. It's not what happened with the tower. It's not what happened with hurricanes Harvey and Irma. But the real calamity is when people die in their sin because they refuse to repent and trust in Christ as the only hope of their salvation. The real calamity is when a man or a woman fails to settle the dispute they have with a holy God. Please understand, whenever an unbeliever dies, it is a calamity. And it is always an act of divine judgment because their time of repentance ran out. Moreover, Jesus is saying we're all going to die. It's inevitable. We, we don't know when, but we're all going to die. Every single one of us right now is living on borrowed time. And everyone who dies in a natural disaster or some other form of evil, some great catastrophe, guess what? They were going to die anyway. They just didn't know when. Oh, but I can hear it now. Yes, but it's not fair that God would allow some to die and others to live. Wrong, dear friends. It is not fair that he allows anyone to live because the wages of sin is death. So our very breath is a testimony of God's mercy. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. And every breath is a gift from God. So bottom line, be ready, repent, turn from sin, turn to God, place your faith in Christ because it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, right? And what's tragic is that those Galileans, as well as the folks that died at the Tower of Siloam, they must have been unbelievers. They they thought they were right with God, but they weren't because it says, uh, thus, they perished. The term is used to describe someone who is eternally lost or destroyed. The idea of eternal separation, the ultimate and eternal judgment. You see, friends, when innocent babies die, when godly saints die in some catastrophe, a plane crash, whatever it is, they were going to die anyway. We have to remember that, as sad as it is. And death to them merely ushered them into the presence of God's glory, blameless with great joy, right? But when those who are living in rebellion with God, when those who are somehow trusting in their own righteousness to make them acceptable to God, or someone who has been deceived by some false religious system, when those people die in what we would call a natural disaster, please know that is an act of divine judgment. They did not repent, so they will perish. Those who survive some great catastrophe are recipients of divine mercy, not because they are more deserving, but simply because God in his infinite love has given them another chance to get right with him. Or if a person is united to faith in Christ and he survives some great catastrophe. He's given another opportunity to serve Christ. I think of my dear father who survived the greatest catastrophe at sea in the history of the United States Navy. Why did God do that? Because he's better than anybody else. By the way, I had to answer that question to National Geographic. When When the documentary comes out, I'm sure they will cut out that whole section. But uh, I explained what I'm saying here in, in a few short paragraphs and and Well, to the natural man, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness. They cannot understand them. So, dear friends, where is God in natural disasters? The same place he has always been, seated upon his throne as the sovereign ruler over his creation. Right now, Satan is the god of this world. He has temporarily allowed Satan to be his ape, so to speak, to do what he will do until God returns and puts all things in subjection under his feet. But between now and then, 
in his merciful forbearance, he allows many sinners to live, giving them many opportunities to repent and to be reconciled to him. And on many occasions, he brings these terrible things into our life. It seems like every year we read about tornadoes just in our area. And because of the media, we see everything that happens everywhere in the world. But these are judgment, judgments upon unbelievers who will perish. They are merciful wake-up calls to those who are given another chance. And yet very often, death to innocent infants and redeemed saints. We remember that that was going to happen anyway. Sometimes it's sooner rather than later, but they're in the presence of the Lord. And I want to close with just a few thoughts that I hope will minister to your soul. You know, when, whenever we see these, these horrifying events, and again, with, with cameras, and you know, they got the cameramen standing out there, and they're being blown around, and you see all this stuff flying. They're trying to, you know, get us hyped up, aren't they? But then you see the aftermath. I went through some pictures on the Internet, and it is absolutely, it, it is just heart-wrenching. Mike Rutherford and I went down to uh, Katrina, you may recall, when we sent a whole load down there, and we saw things and smelled things, bodies, pets, still in homes, large ocean-going barges that were sitting on top of the rooftops of houses, unimaginable destruction. And I find these things to be a stunning parallel of man's spiritual condition, people that are lost and in despair. You know, in these hurricanes, first of all, think about it, people are unable to save themselves. They, 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 they need deliverance. They're helpless. They, they don't have the resources. You can't fight against those things. And for some, it was too late. I think of the spiritual condition of man. He can't save himself. When the ark door is shut, it's shut. And the same is true for every man without Christ. He can't save himself from the judgment of sin. Others, it's interesting, they refuse to be rescued. They ignore the warnings. They're going to they're gonna stay at home. They're too attached maybe to their worldly possessions. I'm sure in some cases, I know some stayed just to fight, fight off the looters. Isn't that tragic? But many people are stubborn, they're confident in their own resources, they laugh at it. I saw on the news different ones that had drinking parties, you know, hurricane parties. I can make it on my own, water won't get too high for me. It's like many unbelievers today, they're, they're not worried about judgment, they're convinced of their own self-righteousness, they belong to a church, their good outweighs the bad, and so forth. And then... Others, with these hurricanes, for example, they're, they're utterly indifferent to the whole thing. No need to be concerned, to be personally responsible, because somebody else is going to take care of me. That's how they think. The government's going to come in. If things get bad enough, the government's going to come in. Somebody will do something, and many people spiritually have the same cavalier attitude. No need to examine my heart. No need to consider my condition before a holy God, because after all, the church is going to take care of me. I belong to the church. Or, you hear this all the time, the man upstairs will take care of me. And then I think of the criminals who take advantage of these situations. Looters, unbelievable. Pulling up their cars to stores, going in, loading up their cars. Rapes that took place even recently. People that get high during these things, play their demonic music and pray upon innocent, helpless people. I mean, what a picture of, of unbelievers who hate God and live only to indulge in their own flesh, to satisfy their own appetites. People who look forward to hell. I've heard this on a numerous, numerous occasions, and, and a friend of mine told me that he heard a man say this the other day who's sick and soon going to die. He says, well, at least in hell I'll be with all my friends. No, you won't. Because, dear friends, hell is eternal, solitary confinement. Jesus said in Matthew 8, they will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth the, or grinding of teeth, which was a, a proverbial expression of extreme anger and pain. There in hell, sinners will be all alone and they will blaspheme God for eternity in the rage of their rejection, thinking that they have been unfairly treated. I cannot imagine the horror of knowing that I have been rejected forever, removed to the farthest point of the darkest place in the universe, the farthest removed from the splendors and joy of the kingdom of light, unimaginable. And then those in these hurricanes and other disasters like this, there are some that are so depraved. Can you imagine this? They're actually shooting at the rescuers. Now, the news doesn't tell you a lot about this, but that's what happened in a lot of places. They're shooting at the boats and the helicopters. They're shooting at others who are wading in sewage, basically, up to their necks, trying to save other people. What a picture to me of false religions and, and liberal politicians and the ACLU and godless university professors. They are hell-bent on preventing the spread of the one true gospel that can save. And we will probably have some protesters here during our Reformation preaching conference. We're going to try to keep them off the property, but they'll probably be here to do that very thing. Oh, dear sinner, come to Christ before it's too late. For unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And for those of us who are debtors to his grace, folks, when we see these terrible things, may it not only remind us of the holiness of God, but therefore the grace of God that has saved us. And let this cause us to have a zeal for evangelism, a zeal for discipleship, knowing that a storm of far more devastating consequences is going to come upon those who rebel against the Most High, and some of them are in our family. Many of them fill up churches all around this country, all around the world. And I pray that you will let their fate break your heart so that you will be fearless and faithful in presenting the gospel. So let's all celebrate a sovereign God who knows all things, who is omnipotent over all things, who rules over all things, and who has, through the uninfluenced will of his sovereign choice, set his love upon those of us who have been born again. That's the gospel, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they give clarity to our hearts and stir us to faithful service. I ask in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, and for his sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.